1: FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be looking at the latest goings on in the EU referendum campaign, and whether an Australian-style point system would help reduce migration in Britain, and does migration even need to be reduced in Britain. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by our chief economics commentator, Martin Wolfe, columnist Janan Ganesh and Lisa Pollock, plus the Labour commentator, Ayesa Hazrika. Thank you all for joining. So, the EU referendum campaign has unsurprisingly continued at a similar pace this week. We have seen the first two TV events featuring David Cameron and Michael Gove. Jeremy Corbyn delivered one of his exciting speeches on why he's not really in favour of Remain. And Boris Johnson and Michael Gove have continued to tour the country selling sheep pouring pints and all that sort of thing. But where is the race at? We're into the perda period now, and it's the point at which the general public might begin to tune into this. So, Janan Ganesh, to begin with you, there has been a certain tightening of the polls and bookmakers this week that Remain's had a pretty sizable lead according to the FT's poll of polls. That leads now down to three points, so we've got Remain on 46 and Leave on 43%. Are you confident that break still isn't going to happen?
2: Yeah, and these tightenings of the polls... Seemed to happen in advance of almost any election that matters. It happened in March, April of last year before the general election when polls moved about so much that the Guardian splashed on two or three, which suggested... The
1: day the polls turned, I I remember that. I
2: I remember that vividly. And uh, it happened (laughs) before... I, (laughs) I I I can imagine. It happened even more dramatically before the Scottish referendum in September 2014. So I always thought there would be fluctuations in the polls. I'm surprised actually that Leave haven't attained more outright leads in the polls. I thought they would have quite a few going into June 23rd. So I'm not in, I'm not completely dismayed or even surprised by what we've seen recently. And I I think one thing that's that I've begun to think recently is that voters don't take the headline question of a poll seriously. Which way will you vote? Because they know the vote doesn't happen until June 23rd or May the 7th last year. What they do pay attention to are the secondary questions. Who do you trust on the economy how important is immigration vis-a-vis the economy what do you think the result will be not which way you will vote which i always think is a telling question so i'm looking under the bonnet of those questions my view hasn't really shifted from at four or five weeks ago
1: aisha obviously last week was more about the economy we had the second treasury report and the that was a, a probably clear win for the remain campaign this week it's all been about immigration that's essentially the two halves of how this referendum is coming together Do you agree with Janan that it still remains going to happen or has this week worried or shaken your confidence at all?
3: It has worried my confidence, actually. I mean, I definitely take what Janan says and actually sometimes a kind of interesting poll like the one in Scotland sort of energises the status quo to actually sort of buck up and get out the vote. But I think what we are seeing is this referendum being played out. There's two different subject areas. There's obviously the economy versus immigration. But I think there's almost like a class issue as well in terms of how we are looking at this. And also quite a London versus the rest of the country. I think if you're in London, or if you're outside London, and you have a job connected to a multinational or a university or, or that kind of thing, it feels like it's a no brainer. If you're anyone else, I think this referendum gives you the chance to be disruptive. And I think that is starting to appeal to a lot of people. And in a way, I think the issues sort of don't matter as much as they maybe should do anymore. I think people are feeling we've all got an anti establishment thing going on, even though sort of it's a load of sort of posh boys in suits shouting at each other. My worry is that there is going to be a feeling that, look, we could be mischievous, why not? We're in a kind of, nobody really believes anything that anyone says, why not? What was interesting was
1: on Thursday evening, we saw that David Cameron did this first event. I'd call it a debate, but he wasn't really debating anyone. It was an interview with Sky News' political, article fire, so Islam, and then a QA and a with the audience. Now, this is a format David Cameron chose, and it's a format he does well in, that he's good at doing interviews, and he's good at doing those Q&As. He's done Cameron direct and PM direct for over a decade now. What struck me, Aisha, was the level of anger there was there amongst people. So not just, you know, the way the aggressive interviewing style, which, you know, was very revealing about the prime minister's position on immigration. But the audience member there, I don't know how the audience was balanced. And again, that comes, you know, it's an interesting question. But there's a lot of anger against the establishment there. And Vote Leave have tried to make this a guerrilla campaign against the status quo. If that audience is in any way indicative of the country, then there's something up there.
3: I think that's right. I was actually surprised at the level of hostility against Cameron from the audience. I thought Cameron did okay, actually. But you almost sort of got the sense this could be a referendum on David Cameron, actually. But on that case, if it is a
1: referendum on David Cameron,
3: Janan, wouldn't he win that? You know,
1: last year he was elected prime minister and he still has pretty good personality ratings. Yeah, he's pretty
2: popular for a prime minister who's been in power for six years and has been tightening fiscal policy for every one of those years. I wasn't remotely surprised by the aggression in the studio, because anyone who volunteers to be there is almost by definition more politicised than the average punter who will end up deciding this referendum. The people he has to appeal to and leave have to appeal to if they're serious about winning are people who were probably watching the England match or were out or were just watching whatever else was on. And we get a massively skewed sense of where the country is on the basis of that kind of audience, the question time audience every Thursday on BBC One. They are self-selecting almost by definition, quite highly politicised.
1: And they obviously, another example that I issue is the good people of Twitter, who are obviously very disconnected from the real, real
3: Britain. <laughs> well, look, we learn, uh, paid a very, very heavy price us on the Labour Party for relying on the Twitter echo chamber to give you a sense of where the country is. So I have to say, I completely ignore what sort of Twitter is telling me, other than I'm a Tory, obviously, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but I think Janan is absolutely right. I think for us, we've been saturated with information and sort of a twist and turn of this quite long campaign. But actually, for the public, they're beginning to wake up to it. But I think we shouldn't underestimate just how much feeling there is out there in the country. Anti-politics, anti-Westminster, anti cameron And also, because of how both the campaigns are played out, it does look like this is a sort of precursor to the Conservative leadership contest. That also puts a lot of people off.
2: I think one of the telling things is in the secondary questions in the opinion polls is how important do you regard the referendum? And I think 58% say it's more important than a general election. So it's true that there's a lot of anger out there, but it tends to manifest in elections which the public don't think really matters. In a parliamentary by-election, they'll vote for a strange candidate in European elections. They gave UKIP an outright victory only two years ago. If they think this is as important as the general election, as angry as they are, my guess is they will swallow that anger and go with what their hunch is about the sensible thing to do for their own material interest. So I'm not denying the existence of an anti-politics mood. It's been there, I think, at least since the expenses crisis, if not before. But it tends to only really pinch electorally in elections which don't determine absolute bread and butter issues like European parliamentary elections.
1: One interesting thing we saw this week, Aisha, on those kind of material issues was Jeremy Corbyn's speech on the e you now. Many people in Labour, I know you've talked about this on this podcast and your writings elsewhere before, about the need for Labour to, you know, get involved in this um, referendum campaign, particularly at the very top. And so we saw Mr Corbyn gave a speech. Now, I think we all know why now that he's not in the form of traditional speech, in sort of giving something as engaging or enthusiastic. But what struck me was you could have taken his speech and tweaked maybe three lines and it would have been a very good speech for the out campaign and that's a problem for Labour that you know throughout this whole thing the leader of the party looks like he's just going through the motions of in with a and you've there's amazing statistic this week that I think half of Labour voters think the party's actually for out whereas you think the people who are out of Labour are very much a minority sort of three MPs or something
3: well I sort of agree with that I mean I am sort of disappointed where the Labour sort of in-campaign has got. I think they started off with a really good idea. Let's not completely dovetail with the Conservatives again like we did with Better Together in Scotland. Let's have our own distinct Labour in-campaign. Let's have Alan Johnson. Let's have Jeremy. I thought that was a good idea, but it hasn't properly been executed. And I think that's because there hasn't been the political will. Now, I actually think Jeremy and John McDonnell made some quite sensible interventions saying, look the EU, it's not perfect, it's not terrible. We should fight to stay to try and make it better. I think that is a perfectly reasonable and quite a grown-up sensible argument to pitch to the public. But the problem is they haven't really then followed it through, sort of one speech does not make a kind of mission accomplished. And I would like to see Jeremy Corbyn, and the truth is... He's such a cult figure in the party. He's the only person that can really go out and motivate that Labour vote. And I think he should be applying himself like it's the last two weeks of a general election. And I fear we're not going to see that happen.
2: It was an incredibly ambiguous speech. And I see people, I understand what people mean when they say, you know, spin a few paragraphs the other way and it could be a Leave speech. But isn't that the mood of the country? You know, I, I myself am not enthusiastically pro-European. I'll vote because it's the least bad of the alternatives. I don't see a plausible case for exit. And I think most voters feel that way. The number of enthusiastic Europeans must be in the single digits percentage-wise. Most of them work for the FT. <laughs> I was going it, to make that <laughs> yeah, they're, in, they're in our leader conference. But I think if I'm right that this referendum will be won by the Remain side, it'll be won in a very grudging reluctant way by people who are not keen on the European Union at all, see all kinds of flaws with it, but have not seen the other side stand up a model of exit, which makes them feel comfortable about their wallets, basically. And that I think in that sense, the Corbyn pitch, and I'm not a huge fan of his, might actually be more effective than the Cameron pitch, which seems a bit too zealous.
1: Now, I see a point in that issue, but the issue is, though, you know, Janan joked about the FT having a lot of very prui. EU write it. The Labour Party generally, you know, since it sort of adopted a lot of social democratic stuff, has been much more pro-EU. And the point of the Corbyn thing is to appeal and get those people to turn out to vote. So was Corbyn being cleverer than we thought he all was in what Janan said here? Or was he just because some people suspect he's a bit of an outer at heart?
3: I think he was being authentic and sort of doing as much as he could which happens to coincide actually with quite a sensible line and I absolutely agree with Janelle I mean I myself describe myself as a reluctant Romina and I think that's absolutely I think that's where a lot of the public are and that's why I think this is actually Corbyn probably by accident rather than design has stumbled across I think a really sensible message which he could take out to the public and he could actually you know, try and own this a bit more than he has been doing. I mean, I did a debate with John McDonnell um, a couple of weeks ago and Nigel Farage, we were on the same side, with Peter Mandelson, what an unholy alliance. (laughs) But actually... John McDonnell did have an argument that did sort of resonate with a lot of the public who were not massively enthusiastic about the EU. So I think, you know, Labour, it's the last two weeks. I really hope that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell really step up at this point. I think it could bring the PLP together for a little bit of harmony. I think it's the right thing to do. And I think it could do them quite a lot of good for their own personal standing.
1: And finally, last question for you, Janan, that um, obviously Labour's got some issues here, but the Conservatives are not immune from this either. We saw the first rumblings of the constant malcontents trying to attack David Cameron. We saw Nadine Dorries and Andrew Bridgen, who called for the Prime Minister to go regardless. And I obtained from your Twitter, you're not a fan of Andrew Bridgen's as well. And we saw that Bill Cash also rumoured as well. So there are some rumblings about that. Do you feel that after the referendum, David Cameron's in trouble? If he loses, he's gone. Any Brexit vote, he may not physically leave the day after, but I
2: think he'll announce his resignation in the autumn or something. Absolutely, like that. Leave, leave a decent period of of handover, but he'll be gone. If it's any kind of Remain win, then he'll stay. But the length of time that he stays, I think, is proportional to the margin of the victory, and he needs quite a resounding one to be comfortable, uh, to be confident of going all the way through to maybe 2019, which I guess is his ideal departure date so everything hinges on the exact percentages of the margin if I were an Andrew Bridgen or Nadine Doris and I desperately want this guy to go I'd focus on winning the referendum for their side because that absolutely finishes him. I wouldn't get involved in publicizing anti-Cameron maneuvers now because it only makes wavering people think hang on is this about a big national question of destiny about my economic interests or is it about this internal game within a party I don't really care about and that might make them react badly. So if I were them, I would just concentrate on winning, which is doable, unlikely in my view,
1: but entirely doable. So we've heard an awful lot from the Leave campaign this week about migration, in particular this idea of an Australian-style point system. Michael Gove and Boris Johnson have said that if Britain votes leave the EU, we could move to something more like this, which they said would have a set of criteria that migrants would have to meet, as opposed to the, what they said the open borders we have as a member of the EU at the moment. So Martin Wolf, do you think Leave campaigners have a point when they say migration needs to be controlled or
4: reduced? Well, I think they have two points. The first point is that Mr Cameron famously made a promise to reduce net immigration to 100,000 or less, which he couldn't keep. He couldn't keep, because he doesn't control the borders within the European Union, because it's a matter of fundamental treaty obligation, we have to accept any citizen of the EU right to come and work in Britain. And without being able to renegotiate that, it became very clear he couldn't renegotiate that. His suggestion that he could therefore control the total flow was absurd. And the Leave campaigners are a right to criticise him for making a promise he should never have made. Now, the second and rather different question is whether they're right to complain so much about migration. It's clearly become a very big political issue. It's, in my view, a deeply political issue. It's not just an economic issue. And a society has a right to decide how many people it accepts as immigrants and what sort of immigrants it accepts. High skilled, low skilled, people taken for reasons of family reunification as opposed to economic migrants. These are decision societies can and should take. My own view is that the level of immigration we have been receiving does create substantial problems for the UK. As a result, the population of the country is growing quite significantly, it's likely to reach 75 million or so in 20 years. That implies lots of investment, real cost for people. It's quite understandable that people object to this. I think that is perfectly understandable, but in my view, it shouldn't be the only issue that, that matters in this EU debate. It was
1: very interesting, this 100,000 figure, which was used, I think, going all the way back to 2010, when Mr Cameron said, this is the level we will strive to get to. Now, I actually think that was a pledge. They said they were going to hit that. It was very interesting when we heard him on the Sky News debate, or what sort of debate this week, where he said this is an ambition to reach this. But even if it is an ambition, which is definitely downgrading it from a pledge, there's no clear way he can actually achieve that ambition if we remain in the EU, even on his new terms.
4: No, it's absolutely clear. He tried in his negotiation very early to suggest that we could, in some way, repeal the free movement principle as part of his demands, and it became very clear that the other members wouldn't have it. So he cannot implement what he wanted as long as we're a member of the EU. He ought to have known this before he made the promise. There are two ways of interpreting what he did. One is he really didn't have a clue what the EU required, and I often suspect that he really had no clue. And the other is that he thought, I'll make this promise, and if it doesn't happen, I'll get round that problem later on. Either way, it's absolutely clear it was incompetent, and it's created immense problems for him, but it's not the only incompetence, unfortunately, that David Cameron has shown. Well, Lisa Pollock, you've had some recent experience
1: of the current UK immigration system, and there is a points-based element of it at the moment, if I'm right.
5: Yeah, so it was quite interesting when the Leave campaign uh, came up with this announcement that they wanted to create an Australian-style system. And I think the word that they were looking for was actually extend. So there is already a points-based system. It's been there since 2008. They've changed it almost every April in response to the UK's needs. So I personally, I came to the UK under Tier 1. And so this was meant for highly skilled migrants. Um, This is quite close to the Australian system in that you could get points for being younger. Luckily, at the time, I got the maximum amount of points for that. You get points for your education and so on, uh, whereas the Australian system gives you points for experience as well as age. And there's also this focus on shortage occupations. But going back to the UK system generally, there's Tier 1 for highly skilled migrants, but that's been closed over time. So starting from 2010, that was closed to overseas applicants. It's now just a limited number of investors, entrepreneurs, that sort of thing. Um, Tier 2 is where the bulk of workers come in. So they have to be sponsored by their employers. um, They have to meet certain minimum wage requirements, that sort of thing. And they can't displace local workers. And so I think that the message around that uh, current system is that they are sort of out competing as it were, the locals, when they get offered jobs. And one of the things that I think isn't quite as well known, that when you're in this tiered system, you actually don't have recourse to public funds, is the phrase, which basically means except for very limited cases, you can't claim benefits. And I think the last thing I just want to mention is that with the 100,000 figure, that also includes students which I still find completely ludicrous.
1: Yeah, and one thing I think on that, Martin, first of all, the students thing, I think, is a big issue that it's been declined for quite a while. Students coming to Britain, leave campaigners said, oh, we try and fix that. The other thing as well is this issue of benefits that in David Cameron's grand renegotiation with the EU, he said they were going to clamp down on migrants carrying benefits. Whereas Lisa just said, that's never really been a problem. It was a straw man
4: here to try and make it look as if he was doing something. Well, as Lisa said, this is relevant to people who come in from outside the EU. There are clear restrictions. In the case of the people who came from the EU, they are entitled to benefits. There's a sort of standard non-discrimination requirement that applies. Since you mentioned students, it means, for example, that we have to give exactly the same benefits to students who come from the EU as UK students. So the EU is different. However, Mr Cameron did, in fact, succeed in getting some form of words from his uh, counterparts over this issue of welfare. How effective that will be is debated. But the fundamental point is it's just not an important issue because the migrants from the EU, they are similar to the other economic migrants. Many of them are more unskilled, but they come here to work. They're mostly quite young. They tend to have not many dependents, at least not initially. Evidence is pretty clear. They are on on balance, large net contributors. They pay more tax than they receive in benefits. So in practice, the benefits issue is sort of a non-issue. There is one really quite important underlying issue which we have to think about, If we go to the point system, and assuming we're not in the EU, we will clearly continue to receive skilled migrants. And there's not much debate about the need for skilled migrants. What the EU has provided us with is a very large number of relatively unskilled and semi-skilled migrants. Now, they do create certain problems. They compete in different parts of the labour market. But there are a lot of British employers in very important industries, agriculture, tourism, the service sector more broadly, who would argue that these unskilled workers are doing jobs that British people don't want to do And if we stop that, it will create economic costs. So would you say, though, on balance, are you in favour of introducing a tougher point-style system? Well, I'm pretty happy with the status quo. I think it's very reasonable that we approach the economic migrants from the rest of the world with a point-style system, which is just a system that allows you to try I have other ideas on how you could do this, but which allows you to try to import labour, which is relatively skilled. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. The fact that lots of skilled people want to come here and work is very good for us. It provides us with tremendous abundant resources which make, for instance, the City of London work so well, that all the foreigners who work there. But we still have this big issue of the need for unskilled, and I think we do need unskilled workers. They are now coming from the EU, and if we'd cut them off we would lose something. I certainly think. Deciding to leave the EU over this issue will be a profound mistake. And then just finally, one
1: last interesting thing that we've talked about this week off the air is about the issue going back to 2004 which was when the European Union was enlarged significantly, and we had a lot of former Eastern Bloc countries joining Poland, Czech Republic, what have you. And Tony Blair then decided not to introduce transitional controls like Germany did. And that's had a big effect on what created this, A, this anti-immigration sentiment, this idea the government has not got control and politicians have lied over it, but also, B, it might have also affected the numbers that have come
4: here in subsequent years. I think it is plausible. The decision to accept all the migrants from Central and Eastern Europe at once, which the other major countries, Western Europe, did not, increased the number who came here. It's absolutely clear, we all know that, that the numbers that came were vastly greater than anyone expected. And it was sort of seen as a flood. There are now about 800,000 people from Poland here, for example. They've clearly given us large economic benefits. Most of them are very hardworking people, but it's also given this sense that it's all out of control. And that was the decision that Tony Blair took. And I think in retrospect, it would have been sensible to adjust our policy to the policy of the rest of the Europe. And probably the result would have been a somewhat slower it was clearly been slow initially, but even today we will probably have fewer immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe and it would have reduced somewhat the pressure this issue is now creating. And that's it for this week's
1: episode. Thank you to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another installment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening.